From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made in Albany more than two years ago when a woman was attacked. And we'll tell our listeners this hour that this conversation may include descriptions of violence. We ask you to listen at your own discretion. Megan Van Alstyne was on her way home from a rally when she was attacked by a driver. Van Alstyne shared her story with the advocacy group Common Justice, saying the driver struck her across the face with a metal carjack. She said the attack left her with significant damage to her face and to her teeth and a traumatic brain injury. She waited months before applying for victims' compensation with the New York State Office of Victim Services. The delay was partially due to being given bad information about the process, and once she applied, she faced barriers to accessing the help. All of this happened even though Van Alstyne reported the crime to police. As we'll discuss this hour, not all victims choose to report the crimes, and that can impact their availability to receive compensation. Advocates also say racial discrimination has an impact on compensation cases, and data from Common Justice shows at least 90 to 95 percent of clients say they have not heard that services for victims are available through a state office. According to an annual report from the Office of Victim Services, the state accepted about 10,000 fewer cases in 2021 than it did about 10 years prior. And the number of claims accepted has declined since 2014. Are fewer cases being accepted? Were there simply fewer applicants? And if the answer is yes, then why? What specific kinds of resources and support do victims of crime and violence need, especially as violence in our community is especially prevalent? It would be wonderful to sit here today and say, yeah, those numbers are going down because violence is going down. That's not the case right now. We discuss these questions and more with our guests. And let me welcome member of the New York State Assembly, Damon Meeks from District Number 137. Assembly Member Meeks, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. And I think we have Alice Hamlet on the line. Alice is a senior policy manager at Common Justice. Hi, Alice. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Welcome in studio to Chris Hildebrandt, executive director of the Rochester Spinal Association. Chris, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon. And Portia Powell is with us. Uh, Portia, you might have heard her story in recent months on this program, a gun violence survivor and a peer group host. Thank you for making time to come back and talk to us, No problem. Thanks for having me. Um, We're going to hear a lot more from Chris and Porsche coming up. Um, Time's a a bit limited with our guests on the line, and I want to start with Assemblymember Damon Meeks, who um, hosted a a town hall to support survivors in Rochester. Can you start, Assemblymember, by giving me kind of the overview as you see the current situation? We've seen a lot of violence. We've seen just a tragic amount of violence, and it is really tough to hear that often survivors either don't know how to get help or face barriers to that? What's going on? Yeah, there's definitely been a challenge with um, uh, barriers to victims' compensation. And the town hall was to to bring more awareness to this, but also to um, garner more support and more advocacy um, from this region, um, you know, Rochester and Western New York, to uh, support um, Bill number 2105, in in which we're um, advocating for some changes um, to fair access to victim compensation. Uh, one of the major challenges, um, well, there's a number of challenges, but one of the things we know for for a fact is that black and brown New Yorkers tend to face significant barriers um, to a- assessing uh, this comp- these compensation dollars um, to be eligible. For instance, um, there's practices in place in which one must um, file a police report, or um, they also have to um, report being a victim of a crime within a one-week time period. 
And the reality of it is, um, you know, some of these things are just major barriers. And we realize that um, compensation for victims, um, it benefits them in a number of ways. I mean, it's a means to recovering from the injuries on which one um, may have um, um, may may have been a victim to, um, and also um, just just helping them to to have a restart per se um, as it relates to life and, and the challenges that may be for them. Um, we, we recognize that victims and survivors um, can be denied compensation. Um, historically, that has been a major issue, and we also know that those who are more likely to be victims of crime are less likely to receive uh, compensation. So we, we, we're looking at a number of factors um, in the way that individuals are affected by them, and we introduce um, some changes to the law um, that would be beneficial to victims of, of crimes. Um, one of those changes is um, recognizing that uh, police officers may not be the only individuals that can speak to the fact that a, an individual was a victim of a crime. Um, say, for instance, you may have eyewitnesses that was present. Um, you know, in most situations where people suffer injuries in this community, we see that um, the fire department or EMTs are really quick to respond, but others such as one's primary physician um, can speak to the fact that one was a victim of, of a crime, mm-hmm. or even uh, doctors and nurses within the emergency room can also speak to the fact that one was a victim of a crime. So we're looking at um, barriers and looking at ways to, to overcome said barriers to the benefit of, of victims. All right, taking it beyond just a police report. Okay, and, and we're going to yeah. talk about some of the other proposed changes coming up here, but I, I want to also ask you, Assemblymember Meeks, when a system doesn't work or it doesn't work well, it... You know, not to sort of distill it down too much, but in my mind, it's it's either because it's just sort of inefficient, not very well designed, if well intended, and can be changed, or it is intentionally designed to have barriers to people. And I wonder how you see this one. Yeah, I, I do think that um, I, I would say a combination of both. Um, one thing I, I wish that was just a practice, and I, I think it's something that we have to push for, is that if a person is a victim of a crime, like, you know, whether it's the police department, whether it's EMTs or fire department, social workers, doctors, like this information should be readily accessible, um, where a person um, receives paperwork and information, and they know, hey, you can reach out to this particular office or call this number, and there's some victim assistance out there in which individuals can help you uh, with the challenges that may be before you. So I, I think that the system is truly flawed. And and there's one other point that I want to make on, on police reporting before I turn over to Alice for some thoughts about what might change here. I want to read from Arresta Napper Williams, executive director of Not Another Child. That's an organization focused on ending youth gun violence. And this is as reported by a nonprofit publication called The City, um, not not our city, Rochester City, uh, City News. No, this is by the city. And this is on racial disparities, even in just who gets through the application process for support. So this is what Napper Williams writes, quote, the concept of contributory conduct, the idea that the victim took part some way in a crime, opens the door for police and OVS officers to make racially discriminatory guesses about the inherent criminality 
of victims, end quote. So Assembly Member Meeks, it, do you see it? I mean, is, is that happening? Is that happening often? Is that your understanding? And is, is that part of what we are trying to avoid here is officers saying, well, here, here's the scene. There might have been gunshots. There might have been people injured. But this person was there. They might have been contributing. And their own biases might shade how a report is written. I, I believe so. Um, you know, when you look at different neighborhoods in, for Rochester, for instance, I mean, we um, have violence and, and poverty uh, throughout a number of our communities. And out of the what, 25 poor zip codes in New York State, in the top five, uh, three of those zip codes are in, in Rochester, 14605, 14611, and the 14621. So um, a person can live in a particular neighborhood that has certain challenges, and it can be assumed that you was affiliated, right? Um, you know, if, if there's certain activities that go on in the neighborhood and you happen to have on the wrong color, um, and it's assumed that, hey, you have on that color, so you must be affiliated with that organization or with that group. And I, I think that's a, a challenge as well. And, you know, my, my thing is, like, anyone can be a victim of violence. I mean, a person who may be involved in a gang can be a victim of violence, but a person walking home um, from, from school or from church can also be a victim of violence. And, and we've seen those uh, cases throughout the history of Rochester. So I think that we, we have to do our due diligence um, in, in making sure that we're um, pushing back against barriers and, and discrimin discriminatory practices. Alice Hamlet, Senior Policy Manager at Common Justice. Um, how do you see the current state of, 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 of justice, of getting support for victims, and, and how do you view possible solutions here? Sure. I think that we can all agree on the fact that survivors deserve access to healing funds. Nobody wakes up and thinks that they'll become a survivor today and nobody is prepared. And we know that in the aftermath of harm, too many victims and survivors on top of healing from trauma face insurmountable financial burdens like medical bills, relocation expenses, lost wages, etc. And we also know that not only can financial relief help people heal from harm, it can also be really central to stopping cycles of violence. Uh, because when you don't have to choose between paying your medical bills or putting dinner on your table, you're less likely to resort to committing a crime to survive. Because when you can pay for therapy or other mental health services to help process your trauma, you're less likely to commit harm and retaliation. So these funds are really, really important. But the problem is that if it's not distributed equitably, we are not going to get any further into help and healing. We're not going to get where we want in terms of violence prevention. Violence disproportionately impacts communities where residents face financial stress and instability, largely due to structural inequality. So particularly in black and brown and impoverished communities, but rather being provided with the resources they need to heal, black and brown survivors are often ignored or worse, they're criminalized as you alluded to. And the state's victim compensation program and the inequities that characterize the eligibility requirements are a prime example of this because in spite of its intent, it's designed in such a way that bars many black and brown survivors from receiving funds. So a program that bars survivors from receiving victim compensation based on their discomfort with law enforcement in a country where black people are three and a half times more likely than white people to be murdered by police is racially inequitable. I'm looking at the last 10 years of data, and 
I am baffled. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, um, a system from at least based on the numbers, Alice. We're not looking at a system that's like, you know, I'm not sure it's doing what it what it did a decade ago. The numbers are shocking. 2011-2012, total claims accepted by the New York State Office of Victim Services was 17,804 for that year. In every single year for a decade, the number of claims accepted has gone down with one small exception in 2014. It has gone from 17,804 to 16,000, 15,800, 15,600, 11,900, 9,900, 9,600, 7,000 in 2020 to 2021. So it has fallen more than in half in a decade. And it is hard not to be cynical about that. But again, we're trying to talk about why. Should that number pop off the page to me, or, or is there any other explanation that you would want to point out? I think that you're right to say that that number pops off the page. I think it's important to recognize that in spite of the fact that this program exists, um, and all the good that it can do, it is not being utilized um, in the way that it should be. And a large part of it, as Assemblymember Meeks touched upon, and what this this bill that he referenced addresses, is the reality that only 40% of victims of violence nationally reported their harm to law enforcement in 2020, right? So people aren't going to the police when they're harmed, and so they're not able to access these funds. And this is for a variety of reasons. Um, that we've, we've touched upon and can continue to touch upon, but these barriers are standing in the way. Um, and that's why we started this campaign, right, to break them down, not just this barrier, but hopefully others in the future as well, with even more legislation and also expanding public awareness because too few New Yorkers know about this, uh, this funding. So federal and state-funded programs to support Crime victims for expenses could include things like mental health care services, medical bills not covered by insurance, temporary housing, lost wages, lost savings of vulnerable elderly or physically disabled persons, um, the cost of repair or replacement of essential personal property that's been lost. That's part of the list. But Assemblymember Meeks, when you talk about this bill that we've been hearing about, what's the status of this legislation? Legislation uh, came out of uh, committee out of uh, Gov Ops and it's going into ways and means. So um, it came out of committee on the assembly side. Um, we're still working, um, you know, with our senators to make sure that it, it comes out of committee and um, that we um, get it to the floor for a vote. Uh, last year, um, it did pass in in the assembly in the assembly uh, unanimously. You know, this was um, it became bipartisan. You, you, the Dems and Republicans. Um, you know, all voted in favor of this legislation, uh, recognizing uh, the challenges and, and the barriers to victims of, of violence. So I'm, I'm um, hopeful that, that things will move along smoothly this year and that we'll get this done um, before we near the end of session. Alice, what do you think um, about not only the legislation, but what else needs to get done? I think that this legislation is a huge first step into launching a campaign that will hopefully continue to make legislative uh, changes and then also public awareness, as I mentioned. We have a tremendous amount of support, uh, both with co-sponsorship and support from lawmakers, but also from over 40 organizations statewide who have signed on and said they care about this and they believe it needs to happen. The longer we wait to have this bill signed into law, um, the longer lawmakers wait to make this bill a reality, the longer we're making survivors of violence 
particularly black and brown survivors, wait for relief. I'm looking at a statement from the Office of Victim Services um, and a story about this on the city, as we talked about. An OVS spokesperson, again, that's the Office of Victim Services, said it's important to note that decisions about awards as well as payouts for claims occur on a rolling basis. Decisions can also change once additional paperwork is provided over the same fiscal year, making it difficult to compare no award decisions against the total number of decisions made within a given year. And their statement to the city said, quote, the Office of Victim Services has a proven track record for expanding eligibility for victims' compensation, streamlining its claims process, and improving access to services. That being said, we know that barriers remain. We will continue to work closely with service providers, victims of survivors of crime, and other stakeholders to expand access to compensation while ensuring that the safety net provided by OVS remains as accessible to anyone who needs it. End quote. Alice, what do you make of that statement? I'd like to focus on the the idea of anyone who needs it um, and challenge what people think or who people think a survivor is. If we are just serving survivors who are white, if we are just serving survivors who already have access to resources, then we are not doing what we need to do. So anyone who needs it needs to include folks who are not comfortable going to law enforcement, full stop. Um, and I really think that that idea is of all survivors deserving access to, feel, to healing is one that is at the crux of this campaign. It's at the crux of this bill and in conversations that continue to happen of how do we stop violence? How do we serve survivors? This bill, this campaign are handing those answers out on a silver platter to lawmakers uh, and to folks looking to make change. Assembly Member Meeks, what do you make of the OBS statement? I think, you know, even this legislation, like it's a step um, in the right direction, but it doesn't quite fully get us where we where we need to go. Um, when we look at the, the challenges uh, regarding victim, victims' compensation, uh, medical, um, um, mental health expenses, burial expenses, um, even moving expenses, in, in some instances, these needs are emergencies. And, and this is a process which tends to be like the last result where last resort where um, they're looking for you to file insurance claims if you have insurance um, looking for the outcome of the insurance decision sometimes the outcome of court decisions and I just think that you know when you have victims of violence and victims of crimes sometimes that those resources are needed like immediately and I, I think that we need to do better in um, being able to assess, assess these resources and connect people to resources in a timely manner um, and get them the help that they need. In some instances, families may need to move from a particular mm -hmm. neighborhood or a particular community for their safety. And, you know, they have to wait on an insurance decision or a court decision. And, you know, basically it, it just needs to move a bit faster. And these monies here doesn't move that fast. And I think that that's something else that we have to take in consideration um, when factoring victims and their needs. Assemblymember Meeks and Alice Hamlet, before I let you both go, um, Assemblymember, let me start with you. What would you want people to understand about um, how to access support now, absent any future legislation, what you would want people to think about if, unfortunately, they or someone they love is, um, is, has been victimized? Well, I, I would suggest just reaching out to my office. Um, you know, Assemblyman Meeks, 
phone number 585-454-3670. And we would do our due diligence to connect you um, to, you know, the state offices um, and local offices to connect you to those resources. We talked to a number of folks at the town hall meeting who said, hey, I processed this paperwork over a year ago. Um, I haven't received any details or any um, decision as of yet. And we committed to um, assisting them and working with them. So um, just recognize our office as a resource. Uh, we may not have the answer, but we're committed to working with you to get answers and connect you to resources. Alice, what do you want people to know? Sure. On top of what Assemblymember Meek shared, um, these applications can be submitted online. Uh, for assistance, going to local victim service providers, folks that can aid in, in this process. Also, if people are interested in learning more about the campaign, they can Google uh, Common Justice or the Fair Access to Victim Compensation campaign to learn more. We'd love to have more people involved. Tell us what the, the, the mission of Common Justice is, Alice. Sure thing. So uh, Common Justice is the first alternative to incarceration and victim service program in the country that addresses serious violent felonies in adult courts. So we use restorative justice programming to reimagine accountability outside of incarceration. And speaking to our involvement with this campaign, our direct service work informs our policy work. So at the state level, we advocate for legislative changes that promote safety and healing in black and brown communities as well as decarceration. And Assemblymember Meeks, finally, um, on the subject of violence in our community, there is not a simple answer that is a policy lever or a simple step that is going to end or cut violence in half? I mean, I, I know this is complex and challenging. What is not happening in your eyes that could happen that would start to reduce the kind of violence we're seeing in the community? Well, that's a, that's a, a, a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the key things that we have to do is um, be intentional in talking to individuals who are involved um, in violence um, who, who's participating in acts of violence and also recognizing, um, you know, generational trauma and, and talking with these individuals and connecting them with resources. Um, you know, one of the things I would love to see is that when we have a, a victim of violence as well as a perpetrator of violence, that the families on both sides are connected to resources that work with them for a period of at least one year um, in overcoming what just took place. Because sometimes what what will take place when you have a victim and a perpetrator, um, it affect it definitely affects their families, and and sometimes families can go to war, following the action of one individual for years, if not decades. So I think having something in place that look at both the victim, as well as the perpetrator, and also their families and the resources that's needed for those families, and work with them for a period of one year, at minimum. Damon Meeks is a member of the New York State Assembly in District Number 137. Thank you for making time for the program today, Assemblymember Meeks. Thank you. Alice Hamlet, Senior Policy Manager at Common Justice. Alice, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. When we come back from our only break, we're going to talk to uh, Chris Hildebrand, Executive Director of the Rochester Spinal Association, Portia Powell, who is a survivor of gun violence and a peer group host. And um, as we talk about the response to violence and the support for victim services and for victims. Um, if you have a story to share or questions, concerns, I, I wonder if you've been through or someone you love has been through something and have you been able to access the support you needed um, or 
Perhaps not. Uh, you can call the program toll-free, 844-295-TALK, 844-295-8255, 263-WXXI if you're calling from Rochester, 263-9994. You can email the program, connections at wxxi.org. Coming up in our second hour, Russian Troll Farm is showing at Jiva Theater this month. I went to see it recently, and it's listed as a workplace comedy. It's funny. I laughed a lot, but it's also pretty dark. It's about the real-life Russian Internet Research Agency that has messed with us starting with the 2016 election and continues to this day. It has made me rethink my relationship with social media. We'll talk about it next hour. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. The theme of this hour is whether there is support for people uh, who have been victims of violence, survivors of violence. And one person who is, has become, in, for many people, a one-man support service is, is Chris Hildebrand. I mean, the, the kind of things that Chris does as executor, executive director of the Rochester Spinal Association, he is doing work on systems and helping um, move and, and change systems. He is also doing all kinds of the kind of work that doesn't get reported that we just happen to know about. And I know that you feel strongly about the importance of helping people who are um, whose lives have been changed sometimes by violence. Thanks for being back with us here. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, and what did you uh, What did you make of what you heard from Assemblymember Meeks and, and Alice Hamlet there? Um, I, I think definitely what they're saying is, is similar to the themes that we're experiencing. That um, Shay can tell you from her experience and some from some of the experiences of um, some of our friends and connections. Um, that they're like it's a wonderful system when it works. Uh, and when it doesn't work, it it really, really doesn't work. <laughs> well, so let me have you elaborate a little bit on that back end, um, because I think I know what you're saying. But when you when it doesn't work, it sounds like it compounds an already devastating situation. Describe for me what you mean by that, Chris. Yeah, if, I mean for us, it's um, somebody who who's paralyzed, somebody who's you know, for most of our experience, it's been somebody who's been shot and paralyzed, but, you know, other types of victimization. Um, a friend of mine was physically assaulted 10 years ago or whatever and was paralyzed from that. You know, so it is somebody who's gone through something very physically traumatizing. Their need is so much more substantial than it was, you know, two days ago when they were not paralyzed, um, you know, or somebody that's been in a coma after their injury and, and is waking up weeks later or whatever the situation exactly is, um, their needs are so much more than they used to be. Uh, and if there's not systems there in place, like you really struggle. And some people, you know, struggle with mental health and physical health, end up homeless or end up in, you know, nursing facilities when they don't need to be um, because the, the supports are not in place. Did you hear at least in the that first half, half hour um, what sound like good faith efforts to change it? I think from the the two uh, folks we had on the phone, yes, um, you know some of the other connections that we have in our community definitely, um, you know, would not go to the police. You know, for whatever set of several reasons, potentially they would not go to the police, so they're not eligible for victims' assistance, even though they were shot. They were definitely the victim of a crime. They definitely have dramatic needs now. They're paralyzed. Um, but for a number of potential reasons, they wouldn't go to the police, so they're not eligible for victims' assistance. Corshe, um, you shared your story on this program a number of months ago, and I just want you to remind listeners, maybe in a condensed version, I, I'm, I'm always <laughs> hesitant to put you through the trauma of talking about it, but it's okay. I, know it's, I know it's your life and you've been a real leader in our community. Um, remind people uh, what happened with you. 
well, um, three years ago, January 25th, um, my ex-boyfriend kicked in my front door, shot me one time in the back. Um, I ended up being um, T7 incomplete paralyzed. So I've been in the wheelchair for three years now. Okay. And when we first talked about what happened to you, you talked about how, at the time, how different your mentality was compared to maybe the first six, 12 months of dealing with what is essentially a new kind of way of dealing with life, right? Yeah, I think the the first 12 months was the hardest. What was the hardest part about that? Everything. Like, I, I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't going to be able to do nothing ever. Just sit in a chair and rock, honestly. So certainly some mental health struggles, depre- yeah, depression? Absolutely. Yeah. I was very depressed. I was scared to be in the house by myself. Um, firecrackers, I was scared to hear them jumpy. It was horrible. Um, one of the things when we talk about support, um, you know, in a moment we'll talk to both of our guests about what they think systemically has to happen. But I'm also curious, Porsche, when when you go through something like that, we often say that, you know, you find out who your real friends are. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Who's going to stand by <laughs> you? Who's going to be there? And um, and who's going to stay by you? Did you find that out? Absolutely. What, yes. what did you I, learn? I, I, And honestly, I can't even say it was, I can't even put that all on my friends because it was more so me. I didn't want to be around oh boy. people who was able-bodied. It's like, what? we ain't got nothing in common no more. We can't go do the things we used to do together. I'm in a chair now. So I kind of pushed everybody away too. Wow. So you started seeing yourself differently. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even more than some people saw you differently. Mm-hmm. Did you let, then, I didn't want people around me feeling sorry for me either. Did you let them back in? Yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, do you still struggle with that? What, letting people yeah. in? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a whole therapy session. We're just putting it <laughs> all out right now. <laughs> um, I mean, I think what you're describing is so human, and I don't, mean to imply that I can empathize. I'm I'm not in your position, but I hear such a human concern about seeing yourself differently, getting accustomed to that. What are my friends and family thinking? Um, but at the same time, I got to think you needed some support in different ways. I'm not saying, you know, you're capable of doing a lot of things for yourself, but did you have certain needs and did you find it hard to ask for help? Yeah, I I don't like asking people for help. So yeah, I, yeah, I need to help with everything. When I first came home, I didn't know how to do nothing. I was in rehab for a month. That's it. So I probably ain't learned everything I could have learned. So I definitely needed people. Um, Chris, how common is is that that story from Porsche when she says? You know, I didn't feel I had things in common with my friends who are able-bodied anymore. It was hard to be around them. I think it's uh, very common to hear like the first year is a struggle. Um, that when somebody's gone through something that's drastically changed their life, changed their body, um, everything is new again is mm-hmm. kind of what I remember. I mean, yeah. my, my injury is it'll be 33 years this coming Monday that I was hurt 33 years ago. Um, in that first year, everything is new. It's the first time you go into a restaurant in the wheelchair. It's the first time going to a ball game in a wheelchair, a movie or um, all, everything is new again, and it's it's quite an adjustment. Um, you know, Shay's uh, pushing people away or pulling people in like that. I think varies more. You know, some individuals have a great you know support network, and people are right there, and it works out better for them. 
Um, some people have no supports to begin with. Mm -hmm. Some people push supports away or some people um, really even over-dramatize their needs. Like they, they have sort of you know, internalize sort of society's perspective that this person's disabled and won't be able to do anything for themselves. And, you know, I know that's not true, but helping that person learn that is is a struggle. Boy, if anybody's got credibility to say that, it's Chris. <laughs> we try. <laughs> yes. we try. Um, but the, part of the reason I'm, I'm, I'm exploring these subjects is when I look down victim compensation and victim support, there's a lot of different individual ele elements that relate to the kind of things Porsche is talking about. And the number one thing on that list is mental health care mm -hmm. services. Um, what's currently available, Chris? What could be more available? I think, I mean, mental health services are just not nearly available enough. You know, that, that anybody seeking you know, mental health therapy services, you know, very few people or few people find it, but definitely in our community to try to find a, a therapist that also understands like, you know, the well, physical changes mm -hmm. we've gone through and some of what's related to that. Like, it's very much a frustration I hear from a lot of people that even when they find a counselor, you know, they feel the counselor doesn't get, you know, spinal cord injury and it's not useful for them. Are there... Um Counselors, therapists, et cetera, Chris, um, that you are aware of, or that maybe even the association sort of keeps in a in, in kind of a short list. That I, I mean, literally, a, a therapist who is disabled or has a disability has a spinal cord injury, something that that allows more of a like an "I get you" connection. Um, we have a friend that does, that, yeah, that does therapy, but um, you know, she's she's full. Like her business is going very yeah. well for her, and yeah. we're grateful for that for her. Um, but outside of that, I mean, there's there's a couple of um, non-disabled therapists that have specialized training, but it's insufficient to meet the needs that's in the community. What do you do, Porsche, for yourself for for mental health uh, now? I join a group every day and talk to them. I rather talk to people who actually know what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. It helps me as opposed to. A licensed therapist, but doesn't have a disability or doesn't have the kind of injury you have, yeah, and can only guess. Exactly. You know, kind of bumblers like me, right? <laughs> and yeah. for who may have a lot of good faith, but it's tough. Yeah. And for Shay, and for a lot of folks in our group, it's it's double bumbling because <laughs> it's not understanding spinal cord injury, but it's also some of my bumbling of not understanding, you know, what it is to be a black person living mm -hmm. in the city and having survived violence. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about something that that is um, that was central to that first half hour conversation, which is when you see the number of people who even call police or even seek claims and 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 file claims and seek support, that number has dropped. The number of accepted claims has dropped dramatically, and Assembly Member Meeks acknowledged this. Our guests have said, I mean, Chris, you, you mentioned that there are people that you, through your work with, um, with the association, you meet and they're adamant they're not they didn't call police they won't call police for different reasons i think people struggle to understand that have you done some work to understand that yourself to make sure you understand hey there's a lot of different reasons people have and even if that wouldn't be my choice i i'm, I'm starting to get it more yeah yeah it's been a learning process i grew up in dansville you know we're a town of five thousand total people and i live in brighton an affluent suburb so there's been a lot for me to learn um but i think one of the one of the guys explained it you know, basically as like not even just like, you know, you and I might hear it on TV about sort of you don't snitch or whatever. Um, but he kind of explained it as like, you know, if you do 
turn to the police, you are telling the rest of the community that you can't handle your own business oh. and you might as well put a target on yourself. You know, so whether or not this person would want to go to the police, it's dangerous for them to go to the police. That, okay, so uh, this is why I'm really glad I asked because this is different than what I would think in my mind. The construction in my mind, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of different reasons people mm-hmm. give, but one of the things the assembly member and I were talking about was this idea that police, when they write reports, I'm not trying to despair, disparage all police. Like, like let's, let's be sort of clear. We are talking about something that can happen, has happened, has been documented to happen. Um, it's maybe not even intentional, but the way police write reports, someone who might have been injured at a scene, a scene of a shooting, for example, might be described by police in terms that might make them sort of uh, be considered a possible criminal mm-hmm. when they're dealing with being a victim of violence themselves. But Chris is also saying something different, which is that if you indicate to police what happened to you, you may be in future danger for retribution or lose any sort of social fabric or connection. Is that that's kind of what you're saying, Chris? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you want to add that, Porsche? No, that what he's saying is correct. It's correct. Yeah. You hear that? Mm-hmm. What do you say to people? Um, I mean, like again. You're a survivor, but you're also a group leader. And when you hear that, what do you say? Um, it's not really much I can't say because I can't really give somebody, like, force them to go. Sure. Then, oh, yeah. Absolutely. You don't, you don't want to see. You don't know why they got in the situation they're in now, so you don't want more danger to come to them. So I, I don't know. It's not really much I could. You just kind of listen? Yeah. Talk through it? And yeah. some of it is just the facts of their life. Yeah. There's nothing I can say to change it. Like, I can't butter you up and say, no, it's okay. Go to the police. Put yourself in more danger. No. I mean, that's why I think some of the the changes they're talking about for victims assistance would make sense, Mm -hmm. you know, to make it easier for somebody to go and get the support so that then they have support for housing or medical care or mental health or whatever. And can still be safe. And let me me just try to also um, acknowledge and hold up some of the, the testimony offered on this program by uh, a gentleman who was here before, could not be here today, um, but told us on the air and then extended after the conversation his point that, you know, he, he was shot multiple times. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I mean on multiple occasions in mm-hmm. his life before he was shot in a way that paralyzed him. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he expressed was that in the circumstances of his life that he grew up in, he felt like, again, I'm describing what he described to me. As a young black man, he was probably going to die by gun violence eventually. That's, he doesn't know when. And that when he was shot before but without being paralyzed, there isn't a whole lot of let's go report this, let's figure it out. It was like suck it up and part of life. Mm-hmm. And he has changed. And he's, I mean, I admire the man greatly for the work he is doing now. But it took, it, you know, in his, in his low 30s, the eighth or ninth time being shot and, and paralysis for him to kind of really kind of come around to a different mindset. So it's complex. Mm-hmm. I, I don't seek to be doing anything other than having a conversation that acknowledges how difficult this is. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to support it, if there's more support coming from the state, it, what's not there that could be there, Porsche? What do you think needs to be there? Um, as far as helping victims? Yeah, um, in, in any way. I think housing should be there. That's my number one. I hear a lot of people who's for instance, you get shot, you're in a hospital for months, you lose your house, or you get shot and paralyzed, 
and the house you got is two stories. You can't walk upstairs. Mm-hmm. So I believe that's the biggest thing right now. Okay. Um, and what did you think of what you heard from the assembly member about the work the state says they're doing about helping and expanding support services? I think it it would be great to do that, honestly. Um, yeah, I th- yeah, it'll be a good idea to expand. Um, we'll return to some of these specifics on the list um, from this legislation in a moment. I'm going to grab a call from Jane in Jane in Rochester. What do you think, Jane? Um, well, I have a question. Um, your one of your panelists was shot in the back. Uh, her uh, former boyfriend came over, and she opened the door. And I don't know what. Maybe she tried to run or something. But um, three but years I'm, ago, yeah, three years. Yeah, ago. and um, I'm curious. Uh, two things. One, I want to know: Did he go to prison? And two, I want to know, is it possible if he had any money to sue him for damages? I want to know how that works exactly, because uh, I would want her to get everything she could possibly get Mm -hmm. to help her Mm -hmm. life. Uh, This is going to be a permanent, permanent change in her life, and I commend her for all she's done. But just those two questions, prison and lawsuits. Thank you. Yeah. So, Jane, first of all, um, thank you, and... I share your admiration for Porsche, not in a way that's like, um, um, you know, what, what's the what's some of the slang phrase they call it? You know, the 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 inspiration porn. Or, yeah. I, th- that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, a woman who, in her first year after being shot, clearly was in a tough mental space and has now um, done a tremendous amount of work for herself, but also for other people who are going to go through this. And it's obviously really hard. I have no idea what it's like. So I admire you, Porsche, in a very admirable way. I also want to say, you don't have, I mean, like, Jane's a very loving person, but you don't have to talk about your case if you don't want to, I w- but she cares about you and she's just kind of curious. No, so. he definitely is okay. in prison. Um, as far as suing him, I never even thought about it. I probably won't even receive anything from it. Honestly, mm-hmm. I probably would be wasting my time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a friend who mentioned earlier was was physically assaulted. He did sue the two guys that had jumped him. So in theory, he's a multimillionaire from the personal injury suit. In reality, they are in prison and they are making no money. And the reality will, is there's no will, money coming. He right. will get nothing ever. Um, it, that's Again, that's not something I often think about, Chris, but is when we see big settlements, is it like, well, that's on paper, yeah. but it, do they often not show up in reality? I guess I don't really know. It's okay. I mean, if you're suing a big entity that has big insurance, yeah, that's different, but, right? You know, that's individuals. Different. I think most individuals, it's pretty limited what their, you know, the resources they have available. Yeah. Porsche, did you have any fear about talking about your case personally? You know, and, and I mean talking, if you had to talk to authorities, et cetera. No. No. Well, I can't say no. Once he got arrested, I know I didn't mind talking to him. Okay. But prior to that, he knew where I lived and everything, of course, so I wasn't. But I was in the hospital, and I was out of it, so I couldn't talk to nobody mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> we we have a real problem in this country when fear of retribution impedes justice and it certainly does that mm-hmm. and it i don't again i'm i'm going to try to like be squishy before i say what i want to say here but i'm not i don't mean to be this is not judgmental against anyone who owns a gun this is not condemning anybody who enjoys a gun for hunting or sport or just 
personal protection is responsible. But even the presence of guns, when you know someone has a gun and you know, you got to consider whether you want to talk to authorities about that. Mm-hmm. I imagine that makes it harder, Porsche. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, definitely. So, um, in our remaining minutes, let's talk about um, some of the things coming next year. And one of the things I wanted to ask Chris before we even go any further, I asked the assembly member and um, I asked Alice Hasnett, who joined us from Common Justice, what people ought to know now, because we're talking about legislation that may go somewhere, or may not. <laughs> it's not breaking news that legislation doesn't always, even the best legislation doesn't always pass. Um, so when, if anybody listening is ends up in this position or loves someone who does, what do you want them to know about accessing services, absent anything changing right now, current system, mm-hmm. Chris? I think, you know, it's been a learning experience. I didn't know of the Victims Assistance Assist- a program until our friend Nicole started educating me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, part of that that drop in numbers you were talking about is that service providers don't know it exists. You know, I've seen it's there's been a learning curve with hospital social workers for them to learn that the program exists. Isn't that wild, though? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think there's a need for educating a lot of the professionals in the community about this so that they're in the position as Shay was just saying she was out of it like their first you've been through this experience you're not really in a position to fill out a lot of paperwork yourself yeah yeah um you know so on our end there there's a need for more education of the professionals and then for individuals i guess what i want them to know is that the program is there and you might as well ask and apply um, you know, sometimes I, I don't know all the rules about exactly which type of crime you have to be a victim of in order to qualify. But, you know, outside of the, the tedium of doing the bureaucracy and filling out paperwork, you have nothing to lose. You might as well try. Can you help if they call your offices? I can help certainly the spinal cord injury folks and other folks I would, you know, try to find a better resource for. Okay. Porsche, what would you want people to know about what to do in the short and the medium term if they end up in a position that is similar to yours? I would say check out all resources. Um, ask people. Like Chris said, I didn't know about crime victims until Nicole told us about them. And um, I think it's a great resource to have, but I also think people should know about it. Uh, Mark emails and says, Evan, can you clarify something? Your previous guest talked about a time limit for reporting a crime for which a victim would be eligible. Something like one week. Why would that be a time limit, especially when some victims of crime are literally in comas? That's from Mark. Um, that's a great question. I don't know all the specifics. So, Chris, any thoughts there? I hadn't heard the one week. I have heard time limits. Um, and I think that is one of the things they're trying to change with the bill is to open those time limits up because there's you know, physical reasons why you might not have been able to apply as well as some of the other reasons that we've talked about. Yeah. I mean, so in Porsche's case— before your ex was in police custody, you said it was kind of hard to think about talking to police because he knew where you lived. Mm-hmm. He obviously tried to kill you, right? Exactly. He could try to do it again. Right. So if he's apprehended that day, next day, okay. If it takes days, if it takes more than a week and if you're not talking to them, months. you may be protecting your own life. Then all of a sudden you've missed a deadline, mm-hmm. which is absurd to me. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, the idea that People are recovering. So, I mean, Mark on the email talked about comas, but just in general, injuries can be very difficult Mm -hmm. to, I mean, anybody who's had any major surgery, 
You might not feel like you're able to do much of anything but try to recover, sleep a lot, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden the deadline is passed. That seems incredibly unjust to me. Absolutely. Yeah. So that may change as part of this, and we'll follow it. Um, By the way, how is your relationship with other lawmakers? I mean, do you feel that Albany and people in office understand these issues, Chris? No. (laughs) I think I appreciate Shay bringing up housing. Like one of the most dire Mm -hmm. needs we have right now is – housing that is accessible and affordable and instead we continue to build housing that has stairs and is expensive you know so i think that that's nail nail right on the head in terms of a, a policy need we need to stop building houses and apartments with stairs and we need to just build accessible things that are actually affordable you're talking about housing with stairs in in generally like duplexes that i mean what about a, a complex that also has elevators, ramps, et cetera. The, the requirements are so minimal, it doesn't even nearly meet the need of what's out there. Um, even and, under the law now? Yeah. After all this work? Yep. Yep. The, the I mean, George H.W. Bush was president when they were celebrating uh, some changes. So here's the fun stuff. The ADA doesn't do housing. So the <laughs> housing is underneath the uh, Fair Housing Act as amended. It's under the America, um, uh, ABA Barriers Act, something like that. Um, so housing is not addressed by the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's addressed by other federal code. It's addressed by some state code. Um, but it's pretty minimal number of set-aside units that have to be wheelchair accessible. It doesn't nearly meet the need. You know, so, I mean, literally in Rochester, we have pretty much all of the accessible, affordable units You know, have waiting lists that are like 18 to 24 months long. Some places won't even put you on a waiting list anymore. So now imagine you are a victim of violence and you have this need. And you're on a two-year waiting list. Mm-hmm. So that's part of why when Chris says, do, do lawmakers get it? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to add before we lose the hour, especially on housing? What, what, for the lawmakers listening, and they listen, Porsche, what do you want them to understand about housing? I think that's important. You, that's important. You don't want to be hurting on the street. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some people got kids, even the ones who don't. Being homeless is not a good feeling. Um, it's good to see you again. Thank you. And you doing all right mm-hmm. these days? Yes. Yeah. Anything you want to share that you accomplished recently? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Um, I recently got my GED and signed up for nail school. Woohoo! How you feeling? I, I wish people could see the big smile. Porsche <laughs> <laughs> is so modest, but he, she's kind of got this radiant smile. I know you're proud of that. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. And uh, I hope this is just one one more moment on a on a path to where you want to be so yeah thanks for telling your story um so listeners again we're going to follow this and we'll make sure we stay in touch with assembly member meeks um, and victim services and i hope that later this year we'll have a conversation that says uh, a lot has changed so our thanks to assembly member demon meeks joining us this hour and alice hamblett for from common justice porsche powell thanks for doing the work that you do as an advocate as well. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And Chris Hildebrandt, the Executive Director of the Rochester Spinal Association. Thanks for being here. Thank you. More Connections coming up.